Welcome back to the ownership economy. Over the last 120 hours, a governance crisis, the likes of which we may never see repeated, happened at world-leading artificial intelligence company OpenAI, culminating in the firing and rehiring of Sam Altman, with a tectonic shift in their governance in the space of a few days. In this episode, we explore what led to this situation, how it could have been simulated ahead of time, and what you should do with your governance design if you're thinking of starting a world-changing technology company to ensure maximal flexibility and make governance an asset and not a liability. Joining us for this episode are Dr. Michael Zargam, board member and PI at the Meta Governance Project, and Amber Case, entrepreneur, author, and founder of Superset, DAO, DAO, and other ventures. Both guests are principal investigators at the Meta Governance Project, a nonprofit foundation focused on building open source tooling and protocols for a governance layer around the internet. We hope you enjoy. Case, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Nice to be here. Thank you. And thank you for having us. Thank you for agreeing to this um, somewhat impromptu session. But I think what's happened in the last week has been has offered us a good opportunity to really just uh bring governance up to everyone's you know top of everyone's mind because everyone's like what is a board what is governance now it suddenly matters right and it really matters until it goes awry <laughs> most of the time right so thank you for making yourselves available as two folks who really focus on this so what we're going to talk about today is really just uh more of an open conversation around what what happened with OpenAI's governance in the last four days five actually five days now um a lot has happened in that, you know, 120 hour window. And we just want to kind of dive into that. We'll recount what happened. We'll cover a bit about, you know, we just had the ownership economy summit. We focus on a lot of these issues. We'll kick it over to you folks to kind of get some opinions and some perspective and then just see where the conversation takes us. So before we kick that off, I just wanted to start off with you, Amber. Maybe you can tell us a bit uh, about yourself and your background as a second time guest of the pod. Sure. Um, hello, I'm Case. I do uh, I mostly read books in the woods these days to try and uh, get myself into a longer term method of thinking. Um, I think right now our world is in these increasingly tiny chunks of action. And I think that's not necessarily how we need to be doing things. I think we need to look a little bit more long term if we want to build systems that are stronger and more resilient. So I've been doing that recently. Um, in the past, I worked on DowDow. I had a lot of experiments in the uh, the kind of blockchain governance, governance scene, uh, which was really interesting. Um, and then before that, um, I made several startups. I made one of the very first geolocation platforms um, that was available for iPhone and Android. And I did a very, very early um, uh, electric vehicle charging station startup. Um, along the way, I've written a couple of books and uh, one on sound design and one on a thing called Calm Technology. And um, I've been just really interested in, in the past few years about seeing how people work together. And that's that's been the uh, the the whole focus of you know me getting a, a degree in anthropology and understanding how people work a little bit more. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Michael Zargam, can you... Uh... Yeah, I knew you would like that. Um, can you give us an intro to yourself as well? Your background in governance, what you're working on? Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess for starters, 
relevant to this conversation. Um, I have a PhD in electrical and systems engineering from the University of Pennsylvania. I was in the robotics lab, the GRASP lab, and I worked on um, resource allocation problems in large scale networks, surprisingly relevant to both AI and governance actually. Um, but today I am the uh, CEO and uh, chief engineer at a small R&D company called Block Science. We work on a variety of problems in, in tech, econ, and governance, generally looking at where those things intersect. And I am a board member of the Meta Governance Project, which is a nonprofit focused on basically how we govern digital spaces and how these spaces emerge and participants sort of come into them and then not only participate in the usage of those spaces, but also in shaping them forward. Um, my work ranges from mathematics and programming up through more sort of social science. And I have I work with a variety of ethnographers and I really appreciate anthropologists for the perspective that they bring to these discussions. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you both. Um, and so I, I did mention that we just had the Ownership Economy Summit in the first week of October. So I think a good place to start, I bring that up because we kind of have a very diverse audience when we look at the podcast. We're looking at folks who are in the employee ownership space. We're folks who are in the nonprofit space advocating for more distributed ownership. Then we have, of course, people who are more digitally native who are looking at things from the perspective of Web3 and other communities. And there are, of course, the policymakers and folks who are looking at the impact of artificial intelligence on society more broadly, and then thinking about, hey, uh, do we have ownership structures, legal structures, other things in place that can potentially address harms that may come from these things, the the edge of the organizations and where they meet society, all those kinds of things. Society, I'm making air quote fingers here because a lot of people like to use it in that. Society, you know, it starts somewhere, it's out there, it has a hard boundary, no, it doesn't. But, um, uh, so before we jump into that, then I think it's good to set context because we have a pretty diverse audience and say, why are these people here talking about OpenAI, right? So um, OpenAI, just a quick background, if you don't know, um, $85 billion, $70 billion range company that uh, probably one of the fastest growing companies of all time that seems to have achieved, depending on who you ask, a number of breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, and mainly driven by the implementation and scaling of, lang of large language models. And... What happened last Friday was that, and we will include this in the show notes, there is a somewhat idiosyncratic board structure uh, that existed up until, as a, I think, a few minutes ago, <laughs> as, as we started recording this pod, that uh, sort of enumerate was an attempt at uh, really sort of reinforcing a mission that was built around keeping AI safe. Whatever tools were developed out of this organization, they're meant for everybody. It's you know it's right there in the name, OpenAI. We'll also address that and how it changed over time. But uh, so just to recount that organization and the events that transpired, um, M Michael provided a very nice little uh, set of events from Reuters that we'll also include in the show notes. But just so you know what happened on the on Friday the seventeenth, the OpenAI board. Uh, fired the CEO and co-founder Sam Altman, and then the president Greg Brockman also and chair of the board proceeded to quit. Uh, the thing that was cited for this was a breakdown in communication quote between Sam and the board, and not malfeasance. Then, essentially, a spate of early investors and and later investors, including Microsoft, said they want Altman back on OpenAI. Uh, the board basically revealed nothing relative to why they made this decision. They just said breakdown in communication. Right. And one of the main things to keep to be aware of here with respect to this board's governance and its mission is that 
they can basically take any action that they think uh, essentially saves the world from artificial intelligence when you look at the actual remit they have, right? That's almost the only thing that the overall nonprofit that controls the holding structures beneath it is tasked with doing. Uh, some employees contemplated quitting. Eventually, up to 700 of the 770, as last time I checked, signed on and said they would quit if Sam Altman was not reinstated. Um, then the board went on to extend offers to Nat Friedman and uh, a couple other folks that don't remember, but they all passed. Emmett Shear, the former CEO of Twitch, accepted the role, who then and then said that the first thing he would do is probe into why Altman was fired and create a file that an independent board investigator could begin to actually put together a story for and say what transpired. Um, essentially, from that point, some investors actually explored legal recourse against the board. And as of today, as of a few minutes ago, I believe, OpenAI said Altman will return as CEO and a new initial board will be elected. Uh, and Brett Taylor, who's the head of AI at Salesforce, I believe, Larry Summers, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> and uh, Adam D'Angelo, who's the CEO of Cora. So that's the recounting of the events. But why I invited you folks on here is, as I said, you have both sort of noodled a lot on, you know, what is the interaction between a stakeholder community, the founders of a community, the employees, and the larger society. This is, you know, however, no matter how you dice it, it can be an anthropological problem, an economic problem, a cybernetic problem, all of those things. And so um, I guess where I'd like to start the conversation is it uh, would be great to get maybe just an opinion maybe from either one of you on the thing that really I started on, on this in my opinion my breakdown on this was essentially that if you looked at the uh at the nice organizational structure diagram right of, of what's going on with who owns what and how the how the organization relates to each other in terms of ownership and decision making this sort of outcome you could almost put down as a very obvious probable outcome like just in the when you when you take the mission and you put it up against how who holds power to make decisions this one that was almost something that you could determine not deterministically but say that's out there it's very possible right and weighing that up against the you know ostensible sort of goal of the company and employees i'd say is pretty much in opposition like you could basically say hey we want to continue to actually push this thing forward and when i say that the, what i'm really pointing to is that essentially people have said this for a, a minute really that there were two factions within this company one you could call the accelerationists toward ai and the others who are basically being called i guess pejoratively the d cells um and so i want to kind of just kick it over to you folks and say what did you think about you know do you have an opinion on that organizational structure, how it came to be, and maybe even how you both think about things like this? It's a very general question, but I figure it's a good place to start that could take us to other places. I mean, I can, excuse me, I can give you a sort of high level view. And, and that starts with the idea that these two factions are, are sort of representative of two different, you could call them missions, goals. And as long as you have the sort of profit optimizing and you have some other, again, however, um, grandiose kind of save the world as, as a mission is, it's fundamentally different vector from profit. You can sort of imagine that saving the world probably costs money. And so um, if, we, if we start to examine this at from the perspective of 
uh, a governance and organizational structure serving the function of bearing the tension between those two different forces. And I'll be the first to say that, like, I'm enthusiastic about the idea of creating organizations that are not purely profit driven, um, but also it's not as simple as just saying, cool, let's say we're not profit driven, but then, hey, by the way, we need some billions of dollars of capital in order to produce the apparatus that is the, you know, material element we're pursuing our mission with like you can't just slap on a nonprofit mission and then assume um, that that like sheet over the top of a otherwise you know tech startup is going to hold together and insofar as you do have people who are actually genuinely focused on a, a mission-oriented approach they are expecting can reasonably expect to come into tension and so at least for me the idea of having um, an organizational structure capable of bearing the tension or like holding the balance between, you know, producing profits enough to fuel um, a mission is actually important and valuable. Maybe the way that it was gone about was um, maybe lacking some uh, wisdom, lacking some historical context. I think there are better ways in the in the history of the, of the U.S. economy, at least, to organize mm. uh, mission-driven organizations um, without neglecting um, profit and, and at least revenue um, and large amounts of it as, and capital injections as um, requirements in order to be successful. Yeah. And to add, just to clarify or add further clarity to that, you know, we're talking about a company that got to a billion dollars probably faster than any billion dollars in revenue faster than almost any other consumer, at least consumer tech company in the history of tech. And so that's a that that demands something really it demands a lot of people from on the social political and economic governance side and you have to be thinking about that as you're building your organization case anything to riff on on top of what mike said yeah i'm just uh, i like to compare this to the things that have happened in the past which is always a you know it's it's not exactly how how things work out every time but um as Zargon was talking, I was just thinking about um, the the meteoric rise of Cisco Systems and the the original founders that had slightly different intentions, and then the company got really big and wanted to monetize and wanted to grow, um, and they were kicked out. Um, and that was uh, I think that was uh, Sandy Lerner. Um, it was it was this uh, husband and wife team that were working on this 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 startup that got really big. And uh, when Zargon was talking about just like differences in missions as a thing grows and then it becomes more and more like oil and water, like there has to be some sort of uh, split up that happens. And and um, and yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if, let's just go back to the Cisco example, if with Cisco, if they had come up with some sort of governance framework that allowed for after this certain time, you know, these founders go off and do a certain other thing or like let themselves down nicely. Like that would be really hard. I mean, it was really their baby. Um, but when I was talking with uh, Jerry from Ben and Jerry's, he was talking about how uh, even though their company got taken over by Unilever, they had some pretty interesting structures in, inside their, their organization. I think it was always 8%, even if the company changes ownership um, mm. that goes to charity. Um, and so there's a foundation, there's all these other structures so that even if some hostile takeover happened, um, they would still have the ability to 
affect the world in the way that they wanted to do. They had a lot more foresight, I think, um, in uh, in playing in that space. And I think also, you know, the ice the ice cream space is not necessarily technology, mm -hmm. yeah. but it is a very very crowded, very well tooled space going up against. Um, uh, you know, Hawk and Docs and all of these things. Um, so it's it's just interesting to see, you know, parallels along, can you predict what might happen in the future and make something flexible or not? Or are you super, super, super close to a thing um, and it gets really heated um, and, and explosive as you get to that break point? I think, so that's awesome. I want to riff on something that both of you put out there, this oil and water metaphor. Zargam, you st stated it in this tension between mission and profit. And, you know, case you, you just voiced it with these sort of rival factions and maybe you could think of them as like oil and water. So one one thing that brings to mind for me is, uh, do either of you read Ben Thompson, the stratechery analyst? He he's um, He's probably responsible for Substack being turned into a product. So he's been in, he's been a he's been one of the most prolific writers in the space for about ten years. Um, he worked for Microsoft, and then he literally was one of the very first people, 2013, 2014, to say, "I'm going to build my own newsletter on top of Ghost and a couple other things." And um, and he's you know that's his life actually. And so he has exclusive access to like Mike, Mark Zuckerberg and Satya. He's built and interviewed multiple times for the newsletter over the years. And I was reading his take on this the other day, and it is, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Essentially, um, he he's been harping on OpenAI for probably the last four years or so, especially since he got hold of the organizational structure. And one of his early, I was reading some of his old things, and he essentially was like, "The only thing that always gets me about OpenAI is this really, you know, I think I'm only even quoting him here. This really nutty organizational structure they have that doesn't let them be a profit maximizing company, which is something I would trust way more than one with that has these nonprofit good intentions baked into it in an amorphous way. And so uh, the question I wanted to ask you is <laughs> he, he basically made, uh, he in his latest newsletter, he made the, I guess you could say it's the claim that now we see the, basically for almost everybody there's no reason to innovate at the level of organizational structure you should just be picking an llc or c corp or some sort of profit maximizing thing and going with that right like this is like almost proof that oil yeah. beats water and so i'd love to throw that over to you and say what's the norm what's the nuance there maybe is there is there something lost there? Yeah, you think? Got something on that. like i can't like look i think if you want something to behave predictably and you know how a particular kind of organizational structure behaves. I think there's a, a case here for OpenAI in particular that like the board's mandate was too grandiose, too vague, too, too whatever. It doesn't, doesn't provide meaningful structure. It's just basically a, a backdoor for discretion without, um, without a mandate, without a set of principles through which those... Um, through which that discretion can be um, legitimized, evaluated, scrutinized, um, and so on. Um, and again, this is sort of projection, but like, 
I think it's always relevant to have organizations which are capable of pursuing missions other than profit. I mean, I'd hate to live in a world where the only kind of institutions are, you know, for poor profit private entities and effectively large scale, you know, nation state governmental apparatuses and none of the, you know, third sector, none of the none of the the civil society that's built around any other objective period. Um, so I like I really have a sharp reaction to the idea that, oh no, just be a be a for-profit. Um, I do think though that in an environment where you do it haphazardly, um, that it could be worse. That like there's a certain amount of predictability, you know what to accept, expect, there are accountability and and um corporate governance mechanisms in place with norms and legal practices that could have done a lot to um uh, more effectively like smooth a lot of this um, activity out and, and pr produce something that was more predictable from the perspective of the investors, from the perspective of the team members, from the perspective of the users of these applications and so on. Uh, all that said, I actually think that um, the large scale AI systems are a good candidate for um, sort of a, a novel approach to organization because I view them as a form of public infrastructure, um, at least at the direction that the tools OpenAI has released are going. And so I, I think I would be a proponent of a more nuanced, more contextually appropriate governing structure for a large scale digital infrastructure that's arguably going to affect our um uh the way that our like society and economy work um mm -hmm. people like to make analogies to social media i think that did not work out great as a thing that was done via a um simple sort of traditional for-profit model and yes. so I, yeah i would come in at a the structure they had really not a good one for balancing the tension and and it was a sort of shallow way of approaching the tension between the two and that the the mission side maybe just didn't actually get enough attention it wasn't a you know a not to overdo it but like constitutional design type thinking where you're like what are the core principles you know not trying to get into how they're implemented but at least making sure that they're very clear and then if and when the board does take an action a discretionary action through appeal to mission they're able to point to at least some core um some core principles that serve as heuristics to um allow them to speak to stakeholders about why they took the action they did where in this case they were just like you know almost crickets oh, yeah i think crickets is a good good way to put it in case to turn the question back to you as well do you think this is definitive proof that any new entrepreneur out there thinking of some new venture should just shut up and make an sc corp or is there something a lot is there some nuance missed as well in your opinion uh i think uh one size fits all statements don't fit anything um and everything is very contextually uh contextual things have to be done uh like either things things unfold and make and force things to happen if things aren't set up properly or people set up a ton of structure assuming that a specific shape is going to take or trying to force a shape and then the resulting shape may or may not fit that shape and then there's tension um but i think another thing that people don't really talk about i'm not sure why this isn't more talked about is you know i i i like using GPT, but I also use uh, Claude a lot, and Claude comes from um, Anthropic, and Anthropic was actually created by these two siblings, Danielle and Dario. Um, they were um, 
they were both senior members of the the OpenAI team, and they left to start uh, Anthropic in I think 2021. Um, and you know, according to the Wikipedia article on Anthropic, uh, they were these siblings were among those who left OpenAI due to directional differences, specifically regarding OpenAI's ventures with Microsoft in 2019. So there's also like you could if you if you followed that early on, you could have seen this kind of early shedding. Um, that that uh, might have been an indicator of like a, a future conflict or a future split. Um, so I just find that that one of the pretty interesting, uh, you know, as a, as a leading indicator. Yeah, you totally pipped me to the next thing that I was going to be like, oh, this is a place that this is a good place to take the oil and water conversation to. Right. It's like because now it's it's almost funny where we can turn around and say, like, actually, this schism that both of you kind of hinted at um, has already happened once, right? So it's not, we don't necessarily have to talk about it in theoretical terms where we're sitting outside going, oh, I wonder what caused it. Are these two real factions? Do they really exist? Can we, do we need to do some qualitative analysis interview and see actually if that's how it is? No, we actually know to some extent that realistically that did happen, right? And so I guess maybe one of the next things I had on my mind, maybe we could, you know, talk about next is, um, there it, to even get a little bit further into the Anthropic case, Anthropic, those folks left OpenAI and they made the conscious decision to incorporate as a PBC, a public benefit corporation. And so um, I think, you know, maybe if either one of you have an opinion on that or a perspective on PBC, I think it's an interesting thing to consider because, you know, looking at some of the incorporation docs and uh, I don't remember if all if B Corps are PBCs or PBC or B Corps are a type of PBC or if there's, I'll have to kind of look that up. And uh, I don't quite recall and I'll include it in the show notes, but it would be good to hear from, you know, both of you hinted at AI has these really large surfaces of influence. It touches on so many different parts of society, you know, air, air quotes, society um, and is a really the question I guess would be the teed up to you both is, is something like a PBC, you know, let's speculate. Is PBC going to be the one thing that kind of helps us make a little progress on that? It seems like Anthropic thinks though, right? Uh, and if any, either of you have an opinion on that, I'd love to hear it. You want to go first this time? Um, yeah, I, I know a bit more about B Corps and not necessarily as much about the public benefit corps. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I mean, in, in general, if people have traditionally in the past either been here is a family company or here is a publicly traded company that must make quarterly profits and has shareholders or here is a C corporation that uh, has investors that must make return for those investors who are investing other people's money, usually from like a large family fund that needs to be in high risk, then the incentive structure delivered by the structure of the company must be towards these eventual outcomes of Public, going to public so investors can get their money out or um, getting acquired so that the investors can get the money out. It's not about serving the public. It's about yeah. getting the money out because these other people that come in and make more money from the abstraction of the thing and not actually making the thing are kind of, um, you know, vulturing in and, 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 and absorbing um, that work and that excess. And so that is in, inherently never going to, I mean, very, very hard to produce um, something for the people or like for, for the general public. Um, so I think the idea of, you know, benefit corpse, um, and my, one of my early lawyers that I worked with on, uh, on several startups, uh, he loves B Corps and he helps, you know, grocery stores and all these, you know, these larger chains become B Corps because it's like 
you know, a third way, you know, if we think about like third spaces, like coffee shops, like mm -hmm. a different way to look at what the incentive models are for, you know, what, what your eventual shape is going to be forced into from your board and your, and your shareholders, and also reset the expectations around, um, what people are going to get out so that when they invest, they're not going to say, oh, well, I'm investing with this, you know, you know, the, the M&M Mars Foundation funds money to get, you know, 10x to 100x return in this section of the high risk private equity portfolio. And so I think it's nice that there are an increasing amount of alternatives. Um, I don't, you know, it's, it's fairly new. So um, what I like is that, you know, Anthropic may not have the same issues as um, as uh, another corporate shape, and the idea that there's a couple of them is nice. It means that there's a market instead of there's just one. Right. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's really cool that they that they tried it, um, and they might have, you know, they might have seen things early um, and left and said, hey, let's try this different shape because we think that this different shape might work better. And then, you know, it might work, but at least there's another in this batch of evolutionary, you know, Darwinian bird beaks, you know, there's a different beak out there and we'll see if that um, is surviving on, you know, the weird island of, uh, of, of, of AI evolution that's going on. Um, I think for me, the thing that really stands out isn't the specific org structure, but actually the, for lack of a better term, the, the shape of fiduciary duties it implies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a, a nonprofit, there's always very specific terms that allow you to qualify, you know, religion, education, um, you know, with that, for lack of a, for a list in front of me, you can go through the codes and the, there are even different, like, statuses based on what kind of nonprofit that you are and you have to actually abide by um very specific essentially tax codes in order to maintain those tax statuses for um c corps they're very much like i i sometimes refer to I, I, my company is AC Corp at present, uh, and as a blank sheet of paper in part, because as a, in this case, as the sole founder, I was able to use it as a starting point and have the authority legally to morph it and intend to. Um, but then like through a lot of research into that, I've really found that there's so much missing in the design space. So um, I guess to provide the context, I, TMI run is 25-ish people, it's an ish because we um, we have a, a kind of a fuzzy boundary of, of part-time and or contractor roles for projects that vary as a function of what we're doing, what people's interests are. It's actually kind of nice to have a group of people who are not just in or out, but also like involved in various ways, uh, but actually finding the right um, organizational structures that serves that group is really hard. And so doing lots of research, including with, um, you know, other members of the open economy uh, ecosystem to understand, um, you know, what the option space looks like. It's a very different uh, sub-design space because there's an intentional smallness there, which very much changes what's um, plausible. 
But I want to emphasize this size thing because actually size puts big loads on things. So large amounts of money and um, like larger stakeholder groups, more diverse stakeholder groups, they put more weight and more attention on your, um, you know, what I would call a constitutive infrastructure, uh, you know, in this case, a, a set of legal documents defining legal obligations, fiduciary duties, et cetera. Um, that ability to bear the weight is something that you really want to solve on the smaller side, because if it's not able to work with smaller groups of people or less money or a less diverse set of stakeholders, then, you know, you can really expect cracking when you try to put more weight on the thing. And yeah. I think what we're seeing with OpenAI in particular is that they had those fault lines from very early on and kind of rather than um, dealing with it, um, more weight got added, more weight got added. And so what we're actually seeing is the this like, you know, crack striking through it and them saying, hey, actually, we're going to have to rebuild this bridge. And kind of yeah. going back to the article that you cited, it's probable that given the path dependence of OpenAI, that the safest thing to do is going to be to put it back together in a more traditional for-profit corp structure, just because it was built that way. So like pretending it was something other than that, or like trying to, you know, hold this other vision seems like that's not what the team members wanted. It seems like it's not what the investors wanted. Like we can't just solve for the, the economics and the social dimension and the legal dimension um, and the technical dimension as independent problems. They're related yeah. to each other. It'd be helpful to break apart those pieces and look at them one at a time. But at least in the case of OpenAI, the technical thing they were trying to do required lots of expertise and lots of capital. It required a legal structure that was recognizable and suitable for those experts who probably wanted equity and upside for um, the, the funding to, to buy the GPUs, buy the cloud time, put, basically get all of the actual resources that are required to design, develop, and operate large-scale AI systems being used by an incredibly large number of people. And so as much as I think I would prefer a world where they were organized according to a, a clearly defined nonprofit mission and a set of principles that they could be held accountable to and have a fiduciary duty to uphold, I think I'm probably in the camp that they, you know, if you want to get that bridge to stand, unfortunately, I think the, the for-profit sort of more traditional structure is the fastest way to shore it up. But I, I think I'm more vision values aligned with um, trying to build new structures that are capable of pushing the financial portion into the constraints and maintaining an, a, an optimization objective or goal that yeah. is something other than, hey, you make more money. Yeah. I think like and and with and arguably with with the ascendance of AI, I don't want I I just actually want to scope this conversation down a bit more because we could get into like artificial general intelligence and all these and all these either sci-fi or magical debates. But um, uh, what actually is by scoping it down, what I'm referring to is you know just talking about this particular version of LLMs. Did he freeze or did we freeze? Oh, am I back? Uh, can you guys hear me? Great. Yeah, I think like just uh, considering the implications of LLMs and where they may 
automate a lot of the things that of the broader you know jobs and things this is like when you talk about the ai safety argument that's really not the ones that a lot of folks are talking about but when you come to when it comes to ownership and these structures that's one of the primary things that we have talked about on the pod really just saying that if there's a and michael you hinted at this if there's a piece of public infrastructure or infrastructure that's going to have a broad effect positive and negative but just a big effect size on on the on the public at large the type of governance structure that goes into that uh the production and maintenance of that infrastructure is very important and so uh now that we've covered you know we covered a few things just to, you know recap like how do we get here what were what were the sort of uh, paths that we took to get here what are some of the potential alternatives and the real life schisms that we observed as almost evidence of these tensions now if we kind of turn you know even a little bit to the future or even maybe someone listening to this and saying hey um i would i would like to start something in this space that could potentially you know, fundamentally alter the, the future of a lot of humans how should i organize it I mean, how should I think about organizing it? It seems like both of you have at least expertise or uh, just learned experience in essentially either how to make a new mistake or how to at least give yourself solid grounding as you make some of these considerations, fundamental considerations for starting a venture, which will have a wide aperture for the types of stakeholders it affects. Where do you think someone should start? Like if they were going to do, you know, if you were, maybe it's maybe it 2020, end of 2020 or so, and you're about to, you know, you're a, you're a world-class scientist and anthropic, you and your colleagues, and you're like, you know what, this weird organizational structure, nonprofit, they're just using it to launder stuff. You know, I'm making stuff up here, but you know, they're, they're, it's really for profit. It's not meeting our needs. We're going to start a new thing. What are the considerations? Um. This is a great question. I feel like every single thing that I've done that's been successful, and then there was a couple year period where I was told, just make as many mistakes as you can during the pandemic. Just see what happens. Like you won't learn unless you fail. Uh, but I, but before that, I was very, very um, particular about what I did. Um, and the big superpower secret for me was that I would just do like three to six months of research um, towards like past, past shapes before I did anything. So, um, we were all in college when we did the electric vehicle charging station startup. So we did a bunch of research about the attempts in the past. We realized, you know, it, it wasn't just that you didn't have the technology. Like we, we looked at the, the charging stations. Like we, we actually built our own electric car in a garage. Nice. Um, we, we did all of the things to understand the components of the system so that we understood which part of the system we wanted to play in. And then we were able to build something that ended up be, becoming pretty big. Um, it took 16 years to be big, right? So it wasn't, wasn't super big to begin with. In fact, we didn't make any movements for several years. We just made sure we didn't spend any money at all. Um, and my dad is a, uh, he's an inventor, audio engineer, you know, human. Um, so I had a lot of experience, you know, designing patents and trying to carve out a space. So I was able to do a lot of that. And I'd, I'd come out of a, a pretty interesting high school program where we got taught some mechanical engineering and CAD CAM and, and stuff like that. So I could actually awesome. model out 
a lot of the components before I lost the knowledge of how to do that. Because you know, you learn it at 16, you don't know if you can carry it post-college. Um, the second startup was directly out of my thesis. I think I got like three massive projects out of my undergraduate thesis, which was wow. you know, the first research papers on mobile phones, like the mobile phone transition from the screen with physical buttons to the screen with liquid buttons. What will that do to the world? Um, and so that one, uh, I was really interested in if, if things are solid buttons and then things are liquid buttons, there could be buttons in the air. Oh, geofences. Let's look at the history of geofences, people trying to make location-based stuff. And I collected a graveyard of failures and tried to understand why did these things fail and then understand you know, the, the cycles, which could be like 10 years. And if I started three years into a cycle on a downturn where people didn't care, when people started to care again, I would be put into the cycle um, mm. and cared for in that cycle. And so... It was really a timing thing and a research thing. For this particular industry, I'm really interested in in people um, first reading a book, one of my favorite books by her, her name is Joe Goldie, and she wrote a book called um, Roads to Power. Uh, the subtitle is Britain Invents the Infrastructure State, but it's all about the creation and standardization of roads, which took 150 years to do because there were a lot of people that wanted a road contract, but didn't know how to make safe roads, like highways and um, how to do drainage and how to make sure that the roads didn't fall apart. Not to say that roads are great. Roads are uh, an interesting thing to look at, but again, it's it's infrastructure, there's public safety involved, it's changing the world, it's completely terraforming the earth, um, and it's changing the speed, the average speed with which we get goods and surfaces and how we move in the world is changed by you know, the individual car uh, and things like that. So that that's a really good one to look at. And then just like, I really don't think, the, and I don't know, this is kind of a hot take. Do when it. we call people software engineers, but they have no engineering skills because they weren't taught any principles of engineering. They don't know how to do anything in, anything in a, like a robust way. They don't understand redundancy. They don't understand metastable systems. They don't understand you know, the dangers of either mechanical engineering or electrical engineering and, you know, how to make systems we can live alongside uh, that are filled with dangerous stuff uh, that can withstand some sort of perturbation and turbulence. That is, it, that's engineering. And so when yeah. someone says, I'm a software engineer and they don't have that, um, and then they try to apply that to a system that is that could be as dangerous as electrical engineering or mechanical engineering or civil engineering, they don't have the foundation to be making these big decisions that affect a lot of people because within that system, there's a series of design um, processes that help people to understand how to model things out so that when they become really large, um, there, there are you know dampeners in place, like, like on an airplane wing, trying to keep the airplane in the air when there's turbulence. Um, and I don't see a lot of people modeling out systems that way or thinking long-term. I see a lot of people um, being really smart on one hand um, and then not thinking through the results on the other. And, and the other main thing that I see is um, a lot of focus on you watch a science fiction film and everything works in the science fiction film because it's scripted. Therefore, something must be very easy to make because it's easy to watch and fun to watch. Um, or 
uh, if you have a good enough intention about something, just make it and everything will work out. Um, yes. and, and it really falls down. So I see a lot of people like with a beautiful Victorian facade uh, on the front of a, a, a cardboard box uh, where you, you tap below the surface at all. And their understanding um, is is very two dimensional, although their heart might be in the right place. Um, and I'm not saying that's happening everywhere, but for a lot of people that say, "Ooh, I want to make something that changes the world," um, sometimes the tiniest little thing uh, makes a massive change. Like I don't know, MIDI. That's a pretty cool thing <laughs> to do. Yeah. And uh, so understanding how stuff happened in the world in the past and how long it took to affect things, and then also some understanding around safety in the physical space, um, I think could be could be pushed into this this um, this new era, so to speak, um, in a really interesting and cool way. But yeah. you know, when people say I, I can't spare three months to read some books that will avoid, you know, $50 million of mistakes, then I'm like, so you if I paid you $50 million, would you spend three months to read these books? You know, um, and what are the rights? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Uh, well i think uh one of the you brought up a lot of super interesting things one i think the road uh, that story about how infrastructure was developed in in britain and then you know this idea of why it took 150 years because no one had a new to safe roads is like some people might hear that as like arguments for regulation but i really don't see it that way i think it's actually just an argument for training and uh, like just wisdom actually it's just to say like how do we if we're going to make a change to a system at a global scale, we should have a little bit of an understanding of the types of feedbacks that are going to be embedded into that and the impact of those on on the on a broader system, the system of feedbacks, because there's gonna be multiple levels of them, right? We're gonna we're gonna change the biodiversity of a landscape, which what is that going to affect? Is it gonna affect the air quality? We're we we're really on the tail end of a of receiving the feedbacks of of that from a it's a really, really long, um, you know, lagging indicator, right? Like, well, the one I'm really just thinking of because it's top of mind for me every day is uh, environmental impact, right? And only now, like within the last month or so, have we really begun to understand things like tires and their effect on air quality, right? And so like, and we're sitting here 150 years in the making roads and cars. And we're like, you know what? All these air quality maps that we get in, in Apple and like other devices that tell you how the air quality is in your neighborhood, the biggest thing that affects that turns out it's not necessarily the emissions coming out of the car. It's the tires riding on the road and it's the it's finishing the chemical. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> this finishing chemical that's used to treat tires. And so having a little bit of humility around that system as we build it out on a fundamentally completely terraforming scale, as you said, because we, a lot, we're creating so much steel and, and car frames, aluminum, junk, all this stuff. We're about to do this. Should yeah. we spend a little bit of time I, understanding? I really want to, yeah, I really want to say something about this, like Excel decel framing, which drives yes. me nuts because it's like implying something like, like the discussion about fast or slow totally misses the, um, the natural time scale of this kind of large scale change. We're perceiving it as instantaneous, but as you just pointed out, 
the the actual ways in which um, change happens in and around major adoptions of new technology, especially infrastructures and the evolution of the practices associated with those technologies, you know, like changes in the legal, social and political practices in and around emerging technologies all have a bearing on what kinds of changes and things we might think of in terms of, you know, safety or alignment or these terms that get thrown around with AI, but actually by thinking and looking backwards at the history of various um, information uh, technologies, um, as well as uh, physical infrastructures, which allow goods and information to move. You can look at you know, the in, in invention of the, the telegraph. You can look at um, literally like item after item in history where certain technologies modified the way goods and information move around in the world. You get massive shifts in behavior, practice, organization of governments. Like yeah. you can't look at this as a like race in this like really short-term way because what you're really describing is this like fast acceleration along a line, but because the direction of the line is like zigzaggy you're not actually yeah. making fast progress so it's a yeah. you know, the moment you elevate into like a two or three dimensional space like imagine yourself doing donuts in the parking lot yeah. or and in the process also giving off tire and gas chemicals <laughs> but like you know we really I, at least for me, I'm, I'm pretty pro building AI systems and new public infrastructure and figuring out how they can help us solve massive climate crisis problems and like improve our ability to coordinate large groups of stakeholders at scale. All of these things are possible, but it feels really naive to me to associate acceleration with this sort of fastness in, a, in an immediate sense rather than like a more... Uh, a, a bigger picture fast is um, one where you, you smooth the thrashing out. And so even if your path along the line seems slower, your net path is faster. Um, and for all the AI people, I mean, this shows up in really basic mathematics um, for optimization problems. You can take a really um, non-smooth space and try to do gradient descent and kind of you'll thrash all over the place. If you want to smooth that out, you add a little bit of momentum, a little slowing function, and the thing solves way faster. So like the idea that you can move slow to move fast isn't just like a feels good kind of statement. Yeah. There are like very rigorous ways in which when things are really uncertain, when they're really jagged, when there's a lot of secondary effects that you can't put your finger on, that you actually do move faster if you move slower. Yeah. yeah. That is the that is the funnest trick of all is that the, the, the everything is the opposite. I, I, here's the thing: people are like, "How do I make the next Facebook? The next opening?" It's like, stop! Don't make the next. There's no next. There's the one thing, and then there are things adjacent to it, and then there are step changes in the world. But if people and and one of my artist friends told me this, and like half of my artist friends are like classically trained oil painters that also do web development, so it's a cool it's a cool mix. Yeah. There there's a there's there's um a really big association with someone who did physical print design, their ability to make incredible frameworks that make beautifully produced um, websites because they had this physical training. Um, but one of my friends told me the big difference between artists and technologists in his experience is that artists ask, that artists ask questions, um, but technologists I'm gonna wait for the sounds. You'll have to edit this part. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
the big difference that hold on <laughs> Here, I'll stop moving. I ruined it. <laughs> the big point oh you have to wait for it um the um the the big difference between an artist and technologists is that artists ask questions and technologists are very declarative and i think in computer programming you are taught to be very specifically declarative about exactly what you want the computer to do and tell it what to do um, and versus, you know, I, I spent some of uh, the summer studying at Cambridge University and for the first three weeks of our course, we worked on the question that we were going to ask and everyone's like, how are we going, we should start writing our paper. And the instructor was like, nope, we're going to get your question so that it's so streamlined and so interesting that you'll be able to write your research paper very quickly and it will be able to produce original work. And so yeah. when someone asks like, what should we be doing? Um, you know, if you want to make a trillion dollar startup, um, it could be like four to five years, even 10 years, you raise funding from a lab for to make a lab that works on a different substance that still makes the rubber and the road match in a way that there's enough friction to allow a car to move forward, or, you know, just research different, different um, softening techniques for, for tires, um, so that you can make replacements. Um, that are more biomimicry uh, associated and then you have pilots with those you know we we all know that the, the the increased weight of an electric car and that battery actually off gases more of these particulates exactly. uh which are really nasty um and um and you know finally there's some research from yale that just came out like a month ago where where it's you know it's put into papers a decent amount but i've been reading articles for like several years about we need we have a new playground blacktop surface and then like all of oh, the fish yeah. in the pond died down the hill yeah and know? then like and then we have the resurgence of some weird childhood cancer and also we put this okay. finish we put this new astroturf in for like, exactly right there's all these yep. and it's not um it's kind of like the thing that uh, i think it was the Taleb really made people uh, popularize this. It's the whole precautionary principle. It's been around for decades before he brought it up, but everyone who's heard of it has really heard about it through him. And so, like, I think maybe to to sum it up, you know, kind of on this roundtable that uh, we, you know, this quick little roundtable we have here is, um, you know, case as you mentioned, if you're out there and you're thinking like, how am I going to do the next X? One, there's no next, <laughs> but two just spend a little bit of time shaping that question. And this is the stuff that even the startup gurus have been, whether or not they say it explicitly, they're bumping up against it when they're saying you need to do this lean startup thing. You need to do this ritual that helps you figure out if this is the right question, right? They're just putting you into cycles of that question refinement. That's what customer development is, right? And so like we, you know, you may not even be at the customer development phase. You may be in the R&D phase. You may be in the like, hey, Actually, what is the even thing? What is the thing that we even commercialize and bring to customers to solve this problem? And then before that, you know, I really like what you what you pointed out here. Of just the likelihood of that kind of perturbation, and you go, "Hmm, this seems like a thing that's maybe not the right design for this situation." Yes, I'm groaning because ostensibly a lot of the people who are involved in this larger space and i'm now sorry we got to the minute fifty nine where I started to criticize the effective altruists. Most of the, I, this is going to get me so much hate mail and Twitter DMs and all that. I'm just going to say it. Most of the folks, I've been in this community for about 13 years, you know, the less wrong early days, all that stuff, right? So I'm still surprised to this day how very little of that there is. Vulnerability assessment, risk analysis for a community that purportedly is so into Bayesian probabilistic inference. When someone comes to me and says, AGI is the biggest risk to society, 
please show me how you show me the math. <laughs> right. And so like, and so like that, even it's almost comical to turn that around and say, show me the biggest risk to your organization because your organization is actually an AGI. Did you know that? <laughs> right? like, We're going to do an entire session just on how um, capitalism as it exists today is a, effectively a runaway optimization problem. That's <laughs> like, like, yep. Oh, like, Anyway, this is a fun hot take, but like just thinking about the way that our society currently makes decisions, if we zoom out and look at it as an organism of, of sorts and the way its resources are allocated and to what ends. And if we imagine that as a kind of optimization problem or imagine it as an AI, what how aligned is that AI with you know, human well-being, environmental well-being, and so on. And so, you know, I like to joke that our we we don't need to wait for a misaligned AGI. We have it, and it is called capitalism. Absolutely, and that's the uh, that's the. I was telling Casus in a separate DM. That's basically the first time I ran into that idea was when Ted Chiang published it, and I think Wired or something like seven years ago. It was around the time when Tesla, when uh, Elon Musk takes on an a an AGI, were kind of going starting to get this idea in the popular imagination, and he was just like. What are you talking about? We already have paper, we, we already have paperclip maximizers. They're just uh, this realm of uh, corporations beholden to shareholders that maximize capital. It's already happening. And that's why we get so much science fiction around this because the fear is the thing that's already happening to us. Yep. Uh, and that's that's why we had you know all these things. But but I guess maybe to wrap up like this you know there there are these things that are happening and they've happened before. And when we ask interesting questions. Um, and ask why the thing is the certain way or or ask if other people have figured these things out, then you know these things aren't super different. They're just mm -hmm. more of the same continuum. And one of one of my the th my favorite things that someone told me when they were trying to get me to become a science fiction writer is they said, all science fiction is just extending a particular story thread and it's all the stories since the beginning of time. And so you yep. need to read the history of it in order to make the new thing. And I think in law, if you want to be a, a lawyer or a barrister, you read a lot of law books. If you want to be a doctor, you read a lot of books and you read a lot of the compendium. Very few people are reading the history of technology when they make new stuff. And there's yep. a lot of stuff there for people. Absolutely. That's a great place to end. And I think also just to add, exactly add on to that, read the history, read the history of organizational structures. And as Argam said, I love to call out, just take a second to even simulate your organizational structure by asking it a few questions and say, team, what are the outcomes you're really trying to avoid? Oh, here, let's make a list. Do we have a list we agree on? Great. Let's run into our work structure. What happens when these things happen? <laughs> and let's just stress test it, right? And uh, I think you kind of end up at a spot where at least you don't become the the scrutiny of the entire world for a 96-hour window because, <laughs> because of, of some really all, all, almost, you know, very deterministic outcomes that no one really wanted so but anyway thanks a lot both of you for your time this has been great and i hope for the listeners this has been at least a bit educational and if you were to say you know how, how do we build ownership structures that are more equitable as the ai is ascendant you know kind of over here in the corner of our eyes well i hope you took something out of this thanks a lot guys thank you thanks a bunch bye we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the ownership economy don't forget to like and subscribe. 